You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We looked at part one of part one of part five last week, and I just introduced this sermon that the Apostle Paul gives to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And I suggested that there is a five-point outline in Acts chapter 20 of these of this text that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders there. And I suggested those five points to you last week. But we just got to the point of introducing sort of that massive sermon, the rich sermon that's in Acts 20. Somebody came up afterwards and said, well, if it's five parts, does that mean you're going to preach five sermons on it? And I said, well, we'll have to see how that goes because it, it really the more I read through the text and meditate on the text and memorize parts of this text, the more pregnant the whole passage appears to me with meaning and fruit that we can just pull off of there and really absorb and apply to our lives. So we need to get right into this. It may be five messages, it may be six. Um, We need to get started looking at the actual text, or this is going to become part two of three of part one of five. And we don't want that to happen because then we're going to end up having, well more parts than your average hot dog. So we're going to get right into Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 18. I suggested five things that Paul uses to describe his own ministry in Acts chapter 20. Now remember, the sermon is the only sermon in the book of Acts given to believers. It's it's not evangelistic in nature. It's not a presentation of the Gospel. It's a sermon that is delivered to elders, to pastors, to the overseers of the church in Ephesus, and it's sort of Paul's fond farewell, his, his last will and testament. He's giving his heart out to these men, and he is turning over to them the shepherding and eldering and pastoring responsibilities of the church in Ephesus. And he is describing not only how his own ministry was to them, but he is describing also how he wants their ministry to be in the church of Ephesus. So Acts chapter 20, there were five ways that Paul used to describe his ministry in Ephesus. First, he describes a persistent ministry. And these are at the top of your notes. A purposeful ministry, a preaching ministry, a protective ministry, and then a principled ministry. Persistence, purpose, preaching, protection, and principle. And so those are the five points that we're going to look at. We're going to cover the first one today. What does it mean to have a persistent ministry? Look at verse 18. And when they had come to him... He said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are three things that Paul showed or demonstrated persistence in that he describes here. The first is in verses 18 and 19. Paul was persistent in his service. Paul says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He's calling back to their minds, their recollection of his ministry to them. And he says, you know how I served the Lord among you. You know how I taught you house to house. You remember from the very first day that I set foot in Asia what my life, what my conduct, what my ministry was like. 
Now, I think that there's a reason why Paul is calling upon their own recollection of his ministry. I think that this is Paul is offering to them somewhat, and it's a feeble one, but a defense of his own conduct. He did this to the Thessalonians. When he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he used words like this, You yourselves know, brethren, how our coming to you was not in vain. As you know how we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. We did not come to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. For you recall our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring you as one does his own children. You know, Thessalonians, what our conduct was like. Why would Paul be saying this in Ephesus? You know why? You know what happened to the church in Thessalonica? As soon as Paul left, false teachers came in and they said, he's not who he claims to be. He's not what he appears to be. He's a charlatan. He's a liar. He's after your money. He's, he uses the gospel as a pretext for his own greed. This is what they said of Paul. And when Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians, he said, you know, you know, because I was with you and we were with you and you saw our life, and you saw our conduct, you know how we behaved ourselves among you. Saying the same thing to the Ephesians. We know later on, Paul warns them, savage wolves are going to come in among you, not bearing the flock. You see, the false teachers were already in Ephesus. Paul had been gone less than a year, and there were already people in Ephesus who were saying the same thing in Ephesus that they said in Thessalonica. He uses the Gospel as a pretext for his own greed. It's all about Paul. He's not who he appears to be. He's not who he claims to be. So Paul says to the Ephesian elders, you know what we were like. You remember what we were like. You remember how, Paul says in verse 18, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Now listen, I want you to notice those words, serving the Lord, in verse 18. You know how I was with you in Asia serving the Lord. Now that is the proper mindset, the proper perspective of an individual who has a persistent ministry. He knows that he serves the Lord. Not men. These elders, these pastors, the Apostle Paul was not there to serve men. He was there to serve the Lord. Now by default, our service to the Lord involves serving others. So we serve men, we serve others, but it's not others that we serve. Ultimately, behind that, it is our service to the Lord which causes us to be of service to other people. But it's not others that we serve. Do you catch all that? It is really Christ whom we serve. And serving Him requires that we serve His body. His body is made up of people, so we end up serving other people. But our focus is on the Lord. Paul saw himself and Paul saw these elders primarily as servants to the Lord. Paul didn't say, you know how I served you and did all these things for you. He says, you know how I served the Lord. That's his perspective. And if you understand that you are a bondservant of God in whatever ministry you're in, whatever service you're in, it is because you are a bondservant of Christ and a bondservant of God, because it is Christ whom you serve, that will insulate you against all kinds of discouragement, all kinds of disillusionment, and it will, it will insulate you from being a people pleaser. Because then you'll be able to be like Paul and say, you know what, I really don't care what you think about me. It's irrelevant in the end because I serve Christ. That is what is most important. It didn't matter to Paul what they said about him. He said to the Corinthians, I don't stand before you. You don't judge me. Your judgment of me means nothing. 
And my own judgment of myself means nothing. There's only one judge and there's only one person that I serve. And so for Paul, it was about serving Christ. And if it's Christ whom you serve, then that insulates you from all the people pleasing. You'll never ask yourself, what does so-and-so think of me? How does so-and-so view what I just did? Does it really matter? doesn't matter, does it? What matters is whether we are absent with the Lord or whether we are present in the body. Our ambition, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is to be well-pleasing to Him. That's our goal. I was serving the Lord. It'll insulate you from discouragement. Man, I didn't get a I didn't get an encouragement card this month. And nobody said thanks to me. I did it all month long. Nobody said thanks. Nobody said we appreciate you. Nobody said that was great. So who cares? If it's Christ that you serve, then you'll never be disappointed by what other people think or what other people say or do or don't do. It encourages it, it insulates you against disillusionment. You just want to quit. I had a friend call me up Tuesday night this last week. Talked to him on the phone for about an hour. He's a guy that I went to Bible college with in Canada. He serves as an elder in his church in northern Saskatchewan. And he called me up because we haven't talked on the phone for almost two years. And we've communicated in email. And he said, i got a favor to ask you, but I also got some counsel. I'd like to get your advice on a situation we're handling in our church. So I said, tell me about it. Well, there's this lady who's involved with the women's ministry in his local church. And there was another lady who's involved in the women's ministry in the local church. And there was some sort of an offense between this lady who offended this other lady. And he told me about what happened. And I think offense was taken when no offense was given. But she got upset, this other lady, and rather than deal with it, rather than resolve the issue, she just up and, and resigned from every form of ministry that she had. She just walked away from the whole thing. Wants to come to church, still coming to church, but won't deal with the conflict that is there. So she just, in a, in a huff, in a pout, up and walks away from it, drops everything. You know what the problem is? You know what the core problem is? Or at least one of them. I give you six problems with the whole thing. But you know what one of the problems is? How she views her service. She was discouraged and disillusioned and hurt by somebody else and she saw her service to the church as service to these people. So she's going to get back at these people by resigning from everything and dumping everything on them. You think Paul would do that? Is that a persistent ministry? Paul says, from the first day I set foot in Asia, I served the Lord. doesn't matter what they thought. doesn't matter what they did. Paul served Christ. And it was Him that he wanted to please. It is our ambition, whether absent or present, to be well-pleasing to Him. And everything else can go by the wayside. Paul says he did this with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon him from the Jews. Verse 18 and 19. He served with humility. You have to have humility to be a servant, don't you? All of us want to be known as servants. Everybody sitting here wants other people to say of them, that's a true servant. It's just none of us want to be treated like servants. All of us want to be thought of as servants, but nobody wants to be treated like a servant. Paul was an individual whom you could truly treat as a servant, and he didn't care because he served the Lord with all humility. It wasn't about Paul. Everybody for Paul was more important than he was. Paul had what I would call a healthy self-image. Now plug this one into your psychology classes on your average university campus and tell me what they would think. Paul had a healthy self-image. He said of himself in Ephesians 3, verse 8, I am the least of all the saints. He put Edwards and Spurgeon and Calvin and Whitfield and Wesley and Moody and 
and all of these saints, and you list them all, and then there's then there's us in here in some order, and then there's a whole bunch of really bad saints, and Paul says, I'm at the very bottom of the list. I'm the least of all the saints. You go to the bottom of the list of saints, and there's Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15. I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Peter, James, Matthew, you lift them on, John, and there's Paul. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. Was there any category that he felt that he was the top of? Was there any group that Paul would class himself right at the top of the list? There was one, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Christ came to save sinners, among whom I am what? Foremost. Chief of sinners, least of saints. That's Paul's view of himself. I served the Lord with all humility. Didn't come into Asia with any kind of a pretext for greed. But that was his view of himself. He was least than less than all of the Ephesians, the least of the apostles, and in his mind, the most wicked and depraved sinner who had ever lived. Is it false humility? No, that was really Paul's perspective. That is why it didn't matter what happened. Paul could just keep going. Persistence, perseverance. It comes from a right perspective of who you serve and what you are. Not only with humility, but Paul says with tears. What do the tears come from? You say, well, it looks in verse 18 and 19 like the tears come from the plots of the Jews. The sufferings. No, that's not where the tears came from. You know where the tears came from? Verse 31, look at that. Therefore be on the alert. After warning them of false teachers, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you with what? Tears. What did he shed tears over? The wounds he received for Christ? No, 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 no. Remember Philippian jail? Was he crying? Were Paul and Silas crying around midnight when the earthquake came? Not shedding tears for what he received for Christ. Where did the tears come in? The tears came in when Paul saw the truth harmed. The truth in jeopardy. It was the faith and the truth that he so loved and so wanted to defend that when that was jeopardized, Paul shed tears. I serve the Lord with tears. There are savage wolves who are going to come in amongst this flock and they will ravage this flock, and they will tear it apart, and they will draw away men after themselves. Paul said, I warned you for three years weeping over this. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, I warned you of some who walk contrary to the cross of Christ, and I warned you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross. What was it that made Paul weep? The enemies of the cross made him weep. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Why? so that you may know the love that I have for you, he said to the Corinthians. It wasn't physical abuse that Paul made Paul cry. It was his love for the truth and his passion for the church. Now I ask you, do you shed tears over that? Do you love the truth so much that when you see truth on the scaffold and wrong forever on the throne, that it grieves your heart? Do you look out at the landscape of the Christian church in North America and see the utter lack of discernment and willingness of people to believe a lie and to follow every last little teacher, every last little ism? And does it grieve your heart? You see churches that abandon the preaching of the Word, abandon the Word of God, and replace it with man-made methodologies and philosophies and theologies. Does that grieve you to the point where you cry? Friends, if it doesn't, you don't have Paul's heart. You want to share Paul's heart? You have to share his tears. Paul loved the truth so much that when it was in danger, it caused him to weep. His heart was vexed. 
His spirit was broken. Why? Because if you don't have the truth, you don't have anything. That was his passion. He served the Lord with humility. He says, I served the Lord with tears. Third, he served the Lord with trials from the plots that were brought upon him by the Jews. What's interesting in the book of Acts, all of chapter 19, remember, is about Paul's stay in Ephesus. Not once does Luke mention any plot of the Jews. There was that big plot by Demetrius. Do you remember him? And the stadium full of people and that whole rally and everything that Demetrius and the craftsmen tried to do to Paul. Well, Demetrius isn't a Jew. The only thing we know of that happened in Ephesus from the Jews that Luke tells us about in the book of Acts was that Paul went into the synagogue and they started to speak evil of the way. So Paul left and he went to the school of Tyrannus and there he began to teach for two years. What plots are the Jews? A few weeks ago I mentioned to you there's three years that Paul was in Ephesus and from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans, we know that there were many imprisonments in the city of Ephesus. Luke doesn't mention them, but Paul does. Remember there was a point where Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Ephesus risked their own life to save Paul's neck? That's the plots of the Jews. In the midst of all of that, Paul says, I serve the Lord with humility and with tears and with all of those trials. Friends, that is a persevering, a persistent ministry. I kept on serving, even with the tears, even with the trials. Persistent in service. Now I ask you, how do you view your service to the Lord? Do you view what you do for this body and for others in this body as something you do for them? If that is as far as it goes, my friends, it's not going to be worth it when discouragement and disappointment comes. Because to be quite honest with you, if I had to suffer vitriolic hatred and rejection and persecution and physical and mental and emotional abuse just because I serve you people, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You're not worth it. I'm not worth it. No mere man is worth that. But when you look past that and say, I endure all of these things because it is Christ whom I serve, all of a sudden that gives you the strength to persist. That gives you the strength to persevere. And people will disappoint you and people will discourage you and people will abandon you. But for Paul, that didn't matter. Why? Because Paul in his mind was not serving them solely. Paul was serving Christ. And they got all the blessings of his service to Christ. How do you view your ministry? Do you view it as something you do if you have the time to do it? Yeah, I'm going to fit that in. I'll do it. Or do you view your service to Christ as something that you will clear your schedule for? You will make it a priority. Because that is your passion and that is your priority to be well-pleasing to Him. Are you persistent in your service? Second, notice Paul was persistent in his teaching. Verse 20. You know, he says, not only how I served the Lord with all humility, but verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I did not hold back from telling you, Paul says, what you needed to hear. Everything that was profitable. What's profitable? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. That's what Paul taught. Everything that was profitable. That's Genesis through Revelation. Well, they didn't have Revelation, all the books in the New Testament. Anything contained in the Word of God, that was what Paul taught. Everything that was profitable. Now, not everything that's profitable is popular. You realize that? Not everything that's profitable is popular. There's a lot of things that are profitable that are not popular. A lot of things that are popular that are not profitable. And a lot of things, a few things, that are both popular and profitable. But Paul says, I declared to you and I did not hold back from declaring to you everything, anything that was profitable. 
But not everything that's profitable is popular. A lot of times we need to hear things that we don't want to hear. It's not palatable. We don't appreciate it. But you see, if a pastor or an elder or a teacher or a preacher or a servant is captive to Christ and captive to His Word, then he will not hold back those things which may not be well acceptable to his audience. He will not shrink from declaring to them. Why? Well, we have to be well-pleasing to him. So it really doesn't matter how it's received. It has to be proclaimed. And so you teach everything that is profitable, regardless of how well it is received, either positively or mediocrity or mediocre or bad. You just, if it's profitable, you declare it because it has to be said. And if you're not afraid of, if you're pleasing men, listen, if you're a servant of man and you're pleasing man, then don't ever declare anything that will upset your master. You don't want to do that, do you? You have to declare everything that is profitable. Paul said to the Galatians, one of the best questions, rhetorical questions I think he ever asked in any place that he ever wrote. Galatians 4.16 Have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? Good question. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? He told to the Galatians everything that was profitable. And Paul says, now you turn on me, and I've just given you the truth. I have a pastor friend of mine. He pastors a church down in Raftham. He's just this guy's as solid as a rock. Looks like a rock. Bald. And uh, he told me this last week. I met with him at a pastor's meeting, and he told me this last week of a time early in his ministry after he had just got into the church that he's passed pastoring Rathburn Bible Church. He said he was there, he's preaching through a book of the Bible, just like we do here. You start at the beginning, you go to the end. I mean, that's how the Bible is delivered to us. I think that's how we should deliver it one to another. So he was going through a book of the Bible and he came across the passage that mentioned homosexuality. And he preached what the Bible said about homosexuality and went through the passage and didn't not like he camped on it or anything or made a big issue out of it. But he mentioned that in, in the course of the exposition of the text. And after the service, somebody came up to him, one of the men in the church, and he said, uh, look, as long as you're here, <laughs> which I kind of thought was an interesting way of phrasing it, right? You're the new pastor, and as long as you're going to be here, in other words, we're expecting you to leave soon, but as long as you're here, I would appreciate it if you didn't mention that word. What word? Homosexual. Homosexuality. I'd appreciate it if you would mention that. And Dan said, well, if it's mentioned in here, then I'm going to preach that just like I do every other word that is in God's Word. And the guy said, well, we may have to look for a new church. Dan said, you just might. That was the last Sunday he showed up. Never came back. It was profitable. It's not popular. Our culture doesn't want what's profitable. We want what's popular. Paul was persistent in his teaching. He did this publicly in the school of Tyrannus. They kicked him out of there, or sorry, in the synagogue. And they kicked him out of there, so he went to the school of Tyrannus. He did that for two years. Not only did he do this publicly, but from house to house, the apostle Paul went, teaching them everything that was profitable, the whole Word of God, so that all who were in Asia heard the Word of the Lord, Acts 19, verse 10 says. So that the Word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, Acts chapter 19, verse 20 says. It was all about the Word. And Paul was persistent in his teaching. He taught them publicly and from house to house. Not only was he persistent in his service, Persistent in his teaching. But look how the Apostle Paul was persistent in his message. Verse 21. What is his message? He was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his message. I love how he sums it up. Solemnly testifying. Solemnly. 
Do you catch his demeanor? Do you catch Paul's attitude? Does it sound to you like he thought his job was to entertain people? Solemnly testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 24. He says that his goal, his ministry which he received from the Lord Jesus, was to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Do you picture the Apostle Paul walking around looking like he was baptized in lemon juice and had woke up that morning and sucked on a lemon before he came to church? Sour and all wrinkled up and a kind of a moaner. That wasn't Paul. That's not, that's not solemnness. Solemnness is taking serious things seriously. Doesn't mean we never use humor. Look, I enjoy a laugh as good as the next guy. I, I enjoy using humor and I think humor is appropriate in preaching and in teaching and in ministry. I think those are, that it has its place. But sin comes when we take serious things and we make a joke out of it for the purpose of entertaining people. Or when we take eternal truths and we try and package them in some entertaining, jokeable, laughable way so that they come across and we hope that somehow we can slip in a truth here and a truth there amongst the stand-up routine to get people to hear the truth. That's not what we do. His message was serious. What was it? Two things. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those two things can never be separated. And I want to show you how they go together in a second, but I want to take each one separately for just a second. First of all, repentance toward God. Repentance is a turn, a turning from sin. Repentance means to change your mind about something. It is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction that manifests itself in a changed life. That is repentance. Repentance is hating sin because it is sin. It is turning around and you. I was heading one way and I have made a 180 degree turn and now I am heading another way. That's repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. He told the Pharisees of his day, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Luke chapter 5, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Matthew chapter 4, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul, in his own message on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, said God has declared now that all men should what? Repent and believe on Christ. This is how Paul described his own ministry. Acts chapter 20, verse 26, listen. Declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And Jesus has commissioned us that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance. Any presentation of the Gospel truth, whether it is from a pulpit or a podium, or whether it's across the table with somebody else that does not talk about turning from sin and abandoning a life of sin is no Gospel presentation. It must contain repentance. Because God will not save a man from sins that he will not turn from. He will not abandon them. And notice that it's repentance toward God. Because there is a repentance that's not toward God. There's a repentance that is a repentance because of shame. You're living in sin, you're performing a sin and conducting sin, and then all of a sudden a light is shown on it and people find out about it and your face turns red and oh, I'm sorry, and man, I just I don't, I'm, get all broken up and shed a few tears. 
That's repentance that is, that is over shame. It's a repentance toward shame, not a repentance toward God. A man can go to hell with a blushed face just as easy as a prostitute with a brazen forehead. Just because you feel shameful that your sin was brought out in the light and everybody sees it does not mean that you've repented of it. Another way of repentance, another, another way of repenting that's not toward God is repenting over the pain that sin causes. A man may cut back on his drinking simply because it's killing his liver. A man may stop his, his adultery because it hurts his wife and kids. That's not repentance toward God. That's repentance because of the pain of the consequences of your sin. Partial repentance is not repentance toward God. Negotiating with God. I'll hate these sins, but these I want to love. These I'll keep, these I'll abandon. You don't dicker with God over sin. That's not repentance toward God. Repentance towards God is when we hate sin for what it is. We hate it inside of ourselves. We hate it outside of ourselves. We hate it in others. We hate it around others. We hate hearing it mentioned. We hate the reality that it exists. All because it shames and dishonors and brings reproach upon all of God's creation and His glory. Sin mars everything it touches and we ought to hate it. Because it is sin. Not because it brings us shame. Not because it brings us pain. Or not because we want to dicker with God and keep some and abandon the rest. It's repentance toward God. So does that mean that as Christians we no longer sin? Now listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. Though no man, quote, though no man is free from the commission of sin, yet every converted man is free from the love of sin. If you still harbor a love for sin in your heart, you have no reason to think that you're amongst God's people. That's not what Spurgeon said. That's what I'm saying right now. I'm going to read to you what Spurgeon said in a second. But let me comment on that. If you harbor a love for sin in your heart, you ought to examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Spurgeon said, Though no man is free from the commission of sin, yet every converted man is free from the love of sin. Every renewed heart is anxious to be free from even a speck of evil. When sin's power is felt within, we do not welcome it, but we cry out against it as Paul did when he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? We cannot bear sin. When it is near us, we feel like a wretch chained to a rotting carcass. We groan to be free from the hateful thing. End quote. That's it. It's not that I no longer sin. It's that when I sin, I hate it. I don't welcome it. That is biblical, godly repentance toward God. Every other repentance will still take a man to hell. Partial repentance, repentance over shame, repentance just because it brings pain. True biblical repentance is repentance toward the one that we have sinned against. Second, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe. This was Paul's message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, is it not obvious to us, or should it not be obvious to us, that those two things go together? Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you have one without the other? It is the repentance that produces that Godward faith. And without repentance, faith is not true biblical saving faith. Faith is not something I manufacture. I cannot say, well, I'll place faith, but I'll keep my sin. You show me somebody who will not repent from their sin, but says they have saving faith in Christ, and I'll show you a liar. You show me somebody who says he's turned from his sin, but has not placed faith in Jesus Christ, and I'll show you to somebody who's going to hell thinking he's a moral man. They both must go together. Repentance and faith. Because repentance is that spring that pushes forth the water of faith. 
It is repentance that causes the Godward-oriented heart to look up to God and to cry out for mercy. It is biblical repentance toward God that says, now that I've turned from my sin, I need some place to turn to that will save me from this wretchedness that I am repenting of. You have to have both of them. They have to go together. I'm going to share with you two things about repentance and faith that I want you to notice. And this I thought was really interesting. First of all, both of those things are necessary for salvation. You have to repent before you can place saving faith in Christ. You cannot say, I'll believe on God, but I'll continue to walk in darkness. Because 1 John says, if you walk in darkness, while you say you're in the light, you're a liar. And you do not know the light, and you've never come to the light. Both of them are necessary for salvation. But something else that I thought was interesting is that both of these things are said in Scripture to be the gift of God. Repentance is a gift from God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In Acts chapter 3, three times in the book of Acts, repentance is referred to as a gift. Acts chapter 3, verse 36, one of the blessings of God is that He turns each one of us from our wicked ways, the Apostle Peter said. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, He that is speaking of Christ, He is the one whom God has exalted as both Prince and Savior that He might grant repentance to Israel. You say, well, Israel's the only one that gets repentance granted? No. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, God has granted also to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. It is the gift of God. Repentance is. Second, faith is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, the faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Philippians 1, 29. To you it has been granted to believe on Christ. Your faith, your repentance, were both gifts from God. Why? They go together. It's a package deal. When God saves you, He grants you repentance and He gives you that supernatural divine faith that lifts its eyes toward heaven and breathes into you spiritual life. Both of them are granted by God. Both of them are the Gospel that we proclaim. We tell men, you cannot be saved unless you will turn from your sins and embrace the Savior. You need to repent and place your faith in Christ. That is the message that we proclaim. But we do so understanding that nobody who hears that message can of their own volition and their own goodness turn from the sin that they are shackled to and place faith in Christ. We don't muster human faith that saves us. The faith that saves us is a divine gift that God gives. And it's all to His glory. And so we know that as we proclaim the Gospel, which is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there are some who listen to that message to whom God will graciously grant both repentance and faith, leading to eternal life. A persistent ministry is one where we serve persistently in the face of trials, tears, with all humility. We don't give up when the going gets tough. We don't turn back when we get discouraged. We keep our eyes on Christ to whom we must be well-pleasing in all things. Second, a persistent ministry involves persistence in teaching. We proclaim publicly, privately, anytime we have opportunity, the message that God has given to us. And that message, that persistent message, is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that God would grant us the grace to have persistent, enduring ministries. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for this example from this great man of God. And Paul wouldn't be able to take any glory or adoration for what he did and for what he wrote. And he would acknowledge that it was all of You and for You and through You and by You. And we do the same thing this morning. And we just pray that You would pour out on us Your grace to correct our wrong thinking when we get discouraged and disillusioned and disheartened in the service and ministry. You give us the grace to be persistent in our message, in our service, in our teaching, and in everything we do. It is the ministry that endures. It is the ministry that is persisted at, that is persevered at, that brings you so much glory and honor. And we ask that you would grant that to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.